Hello everyone, welcome to the Lisa Burke Show. I have a full house of gentlemen and we're going to dive into AI chat GPT. I find that a little bit of a tongue twister myself and all things concerned with how that will affect our working lives, our educational lives and things we may not have even thought about yet. So let me introduce you to my four guests in the studio. Well, I'll start with a fellow colleague. It's it's really great to have you in the studio, Martin. How are you? Hello, I'm OK. It's nice to be here. It's very nice to have you in the studio. Now, for those who may not know your face yet or may not have heard your voice, yeah. <laughs> Martin Johnson is editorial lead for RTL Today and deputy head of digital products. And pertinent to this conversation, you have been tasked with leading RTL Luxembourg's AI working group. So we'll delve into that more. Now, next to you, I've got Christophe Schumer, who is uh, an associate professor of artificial intelligence in the Department of Computer Science at the Faculty of Science, Technology and Medicine at the University of Luxembourg for the past 20 years. So basically since it, it began, in fact, Christophe. Yeah, first of all, uh, thank you very much for the invitation. Very pleasure to be here. Um, and um, yeah, so... Yeah, and, and just a little bit more about your uh, amazing CV. You've studied at the German Research Centre for Artificial Intelligence in Saarbrücken, at the Goethe, interview, uh, Goethe University in Frankfurt am Main, and you worked at IBM Research and Development for eight years in the area of business intelligence correct. worldwide. Yes, correct. And on top of that, um, you have actually traveled the world teaching in Beijing, Singapore, Berlin, Potsdam and Seville and led the AI and Art Pavilion at ESH 2022. Yes, exactly. So we will talk a bit more about that. Frédéric Calvert, we're very happy that you managed to drive up from Strasbourg this morning. Thank you so much for doing this. You are an assistant professor in European Contemporary History at the Centre for Contemporary and Digital History at the University of Luxembourg and originally trained as an international historian, progressively orientated your research towards the use of digital tools and technology by historians, how technologies are changing the way historians are working from, for instance, the use of social media data to understanding memory practices. And currently you're studying how generative AIs such as ChatGPT or Stable Diffusion deal with collective memory and the past. So we'll definitely talk about that. And Bob, I know uh, you've been on stage often in Luxembourg. <laughs> I've seen a couple of your talks. Bob Reuter, senior lecturer at the University of Luxembourg in the field of learning and teaching sciences. You studied cognitive science and use machine learning as a research tool to better understand how the human mind works. Your PhD was in cognitive psychology on implicit learning processes and visual attention. You're interested in many, many things, but really about how ICT can help with education alongside socio-cultural changes in learning caused by the digital revolution. So welcome to you all. You've got outstanding CVs and uh, Christoph, as we mentioned just before we came on air, yes. I'm going to turn to you first of all, because with your CV... I think your best place to give us the context. Uh, you've been researching this throughout your career. Uh, where are we now when it comes to AI and, as most people know, ChatGPT? Um, I would say we are right at the beginning. So um, there's a big hype. Uh, maybe here and there some kind of history. Uh, but but um, I think there's a big chance for ChatGPT and um, depends where we apply it. Uh, I think that other companies will follow and we will have a much larger bundle of software solutions. Um, I'm happy for the future. I have no fear and um, looking forward. Well, that's something I really wanted to focus on today. I wanted it to be an hour of positivity, uh, not fear-mongering. But you say we're just at the beginning. That might be of the utilisation of ChatGPT and AI in our daily lives as citizens who haven't been working in the field, but we're far from the beginning in your field. I mean, there's been an awful lot going on in the background to get to this point today. So give us um, an easy version, the dummy's guide for how we've got to this point. How does it work? Um... So you mean uh, the, the ChatGPT itself? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's more or less not uh, open. So um, let's say how, how, how it's made. I mean, ChatGPT, um, generative uh, pre-trained transformers, deep learning technology is used based on massive data sets. Um, the, the models are pre-trained. Uh, the models live from what it gets from the user, some kind of additional feedback that comes in. The process uh, processes internally um, 
follow more or less the deep learning uh, systems, but but it's not, let's say, again, not not clear what what they really do. That's that's um, not yet known. I know it's a bit of a black box. We don't know exactly what's uh, yes. what's gone on behind. Yes, exactly. But you might have a good idea of what they used. Uh, I mean, um, I, I, I tried similar things uh, a couple of years ago, which were basically uh, funded on associations. Um, let's say people speak, people produce sentences, and uh, the words they use are associatively connected. Um, this could be um, an approach, uh, let's say, where we can um, start our own model. Uh, I think that the ChatGPT itself relies on statistics. It relies on um, predicting the next word, the next uh, event, the next... So, and um, yeah, let's see. But statistics are a massive part of it. Yeah, lots of nods and hits. Martin, I'm going to turn directly to you because uh, this is very relevant to our work and not entirely disconnected to academia in some ways and teaching, but journalism is what we live and breathe every day. Uh, You've come off the back of seven hours of work on this yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) It was a long day yesterday. Yeah, so you're really, your head is full of this information. You know, it might be too full of this information, yeah. Just sieve it, sieve it out a little bit, (laughs) sieve it out. And um, I mean, again, for, for the work that you've been doing for RTL and looking into this, you will have also dug into the background a bit. So what have you assessed? What have I assessed in terms of how it works? Yeah. Whoa, you know, <laughs> that, that is more complex than I think my little brain is able to possibly comprehend. It's not a little brain. But it's, um, no, it's very much as, as Christian said, I think. It, it seems what people are saying anyway is that it's supposedly a predictive model. But then there's also been instances that are quite interesting where it seems not fully just to be predicting i don't know the classic example is the unicorn that it drew using some form of coding language um so then the question is how can it possibly come up with what is essentially a visual representation of something if it's only been given text information then i think maybe people are making too much of that example as well but it's certainly interesting that leads me on to a completely random conversation i had with my cousins over the weekend uh, about whether or not we as humans visualize things in our brains or not because some people it turns out Some can't, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Putting that to one side, um, do you think it will affect our jobs? I think, I mean, there there can be very little doubt that it will. So my sort of prediction, which I think is the the most common one as well, is that there will simply be a massive proliferation of data and information out there. So there'll be tons of articles written. There will probably be new competitors who, who, you know, simply scrape our website, other websites, much bigger ones, Guardian, BBC, whatever, have them rewritten and, and put them out there. And some of those will have a more political slant. Some of them will include fake news, but still look very credible. Um, some of them will probably be quite good and a, a source of frustration for me, I would imagine. But I also think it means that with all of this information out there, I think there'll be saturation on the user end as well. So I actually think that humans will be more important in the future than they are now for journalism. It's very nice to see the nodding heads from the professors in the room. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, saturation is a problem. I mean, I personally already feel quite saturated with it's just so full out there when I research something. It's information coming at me and it's quite difficult. Obviously, I go to the trusted sources, which I'm hoping students will go to as well. But I suppose it's even more important to become a trusted source. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, I I think having a human face, voice and everything attached to what we do will be increasingly important. But then, you know, there's also the fact that that will be easier to fake as well soon because we now have pretty decent uh, deep fakes of, of I mean I could I could do a version of, of you with free tools that would stand talking to the camera telling us a story with your voice because we certainly have enough of it recorded in here <laughs> uh, I did that with uh, are you with, telling me I'm out of a job <laughs> you know, for, for my presentation I took Sam's face and made it just a photo and had him talking and with his voice giving a presentation to the management board about AI as well so that would be part of, of well this is a problem because um, you know it was a couple of years ago now I, I saw videos not great at the time, but I'm sure they've improved, of Obama at the time, yeah. um, you know, and saying various speeches. And of course, we've all seen the, the Pope in a puffer jacket, etc. So um, so how can we tell when something's fake or not? That's the question. Remains to be seen, really. I don't think we really have an answer to that yet, unless one of the other gentlemen in the room... No? Well, that was already difficult with pictures that were taken 
when you were not in the same place at the same time when the picture was taken. So how could you be sure that this picture was really depicting reality as it happened? That was already a problem before. Yeah. So the problem, I think, is not new, but the proliferation of more and more content that, that might have a political agenda, that's really problematic. Okay, so how is technology going to help this when it comes to defining what's real and what's not real? Oh, but maybe I need to turn to you again, Bob, because this is a philosophical question here. And you told me at the weekend you watched a very good philosophical video. So did that yeah. help? Well, not to, not to that question, I think. But, but I think that the, 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 the basic problem is that we, we should be careful not to confuse large language models with knowledge models, because that's not what they do. They don't represent the world as it is, as if ever anybody could have access to the world as it is. I think you need to pause there and tell our listeners yeah. and viewers what a large language model is and what a knowledge model is. Yeah. So large language models is what is behind ChatGPT and, and tools like that. So so it, it predicts the next word or the next sentence or the next uh, letter uh, when it produces language so that it resembles human language so it imitates human produced language and to some extent as far as i understood ChatGPT also produces language that it not only thinks is probable in terms of the structure of language but also what your vis-a-vis wants to hear or read in that case so and knowledge models would be models that would represent the world as it is that that would try to, well, what science does, basically, theories, uh, scientific theories. So in that sense, as long as these machine learning algorithms don't have a way to probe the world, to test the world, to do scientific experiments on the world, they will not be able to develop knowledge. But the problem is that in our language, in our human language, there's so much implicit knowledge about the world that ChatGPT or the likes can look like it has a clue about the world, while it's what certain people call hallucinating, mm -hmm. in the sense that it makes up words and sentences and paragraphs. And even sources. And even sources that sound plausible, very, very plausible. If you just cross-read it, it, it sounds yeah, very, very plausible, but it's actually not connected to the world. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So that leaves us with a huge problem when it comes to, I'll come back to the, the question then, fake news and fake information and fake educational sources. Um, how can we combat that? Open, open to anybody who can help here. If I may. Yes, please, um, Frédéric. Yeah, I think the, the, the first element is basically the human assessment and here training people education is really important when i i did a, a small exercise with my uh, with some students uh, i asked them to ask chat gpt to write a biography of jean monnet jean monnet it's practical because i mean he's a western man so is well documented on the web, but he's not, I mean, Kennedy or De Gaulle, so he's not that well known. Um, and in fact, the text that is um, created by ChatGPT is looks very coherent. It's very convincing, but all the details, well, many details are just false. I mean, if a bachelor student writes me that, he or she might get a 10. If a master student uh, writes that, uh, he or she will not pass. Mm. Mm -hmm. Because all the details are false. Well, so, not all, but almost all. Within your teaching, you are talking to your students about how they can use something like ChatGPT as a reference tool then, or one to be thought about very carefully when they use it. Um, we are using ChatGPT uh, for, for several reasons, but the first reason is to train their critical mind basically, to, to learn. Because it's critical mind is something that you, you, you need to use um, for everything, not only chat GPT or AI image or uh, generated image or, or text. And chat GPT is a quite good uh, tool to, uh, to exhaust, to, to, to train your critical mind. So that's the first aim. The second aim, is that, but maybe it's not the subject right now, is that uh, basically ChatGPT is generating primary sources. And that's, I mean, primary sources are the basis of the work of the historian. So that, that's also, we, we are looking at 
inputs, the prompts, and outputs, the, um, what ChatGPT or in the case of Im images, stable diffusions or systems like that are generating as really primary sources for, for the historians. And let's just say somebody puts out research papers that happen to not be sieved through the filter of what's real and not real. They then become information that is fed back into the system of ChatGPT, therefore filling it with untrue information. So how do you get past the point, and it's probably even the case right now, I know ChatGPT chat GPT really is a tongue twister for me. It's not taking on more information. I think it was September 2021. It, it paused on, on the information it was taking on. Um, but it, it's probably already fed with sources that are untrue. Um, yeah, last last Wednesday I had a um, roundtable at the Chambre de Commerce and uh, the one, one question from the audience was um, that the person, she works at the European Commission and she asked me, uh, what shall she do? I mean, there are some, sometimes secret um, documents. There are, let's say, documents that should not be shared with the with the public and she would like to translate it, maybe Google Translate or DeepL. And then she asked me what she could do. I mean, um, in my opinion, there is also self-responsibility of, of the human. So the human factor that has been said before is very important. And... Um, I mean, if I know that information comes back or is used to train the system even more and more, then um, I think uh, it's the, it's not the AI software. It's it's let's say the human who has to decide. Yes, I take this software, yes or not. And um, I mean, the human factor is really important. And um, I think in the future there should be also much more um, pre-processing, uh, post-processing. Is the information that we get via ChatGPT correct or not? I mean, there must be someone who checks it, and there must be someone who, um, let's say, teaches people to make queries or prompts very precise. I mean, that's also some kind of art to to say, okay, I would like to have this one and to formulate this one in a natural sentence. That's, that's, I think, also one of the points we have to think about. I like that very much, Christoph. You're basically saying how to ask a question is very important. Oh, yeah. that, that gives me so... <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. So I'll turn it back to you then, Frederic. I don't have a very clever question, but uh, I want to know, because I know it's part of your, your working group and your, your um, research, AI and history, memory studies. So can you tell us about what you're doing in your research group when it comes to using AI-based pieces of software to investigate the past? Um, well, there, there are several aspects. Um, my precise uh, research today is to look at prompts and to try to collect prompts and to see when those prompts are related to the past uh, and to see how people are dealing with the past when using ChatGPT or other software. And that's quite interesting. Um, and, and how they enter into a sort of negotiation with the, the machine. Um, because they, they ask a question, they want some kind of precise uh, answer, but sometimes the answer is not satisfactory, so they change the prompt and, and you see this sort of negotiation between between one person and, and the AI-based system. And what's interesting is that as the AI-based system is trained on um, some precise data that for ChatGPT we don't really know. We know there's common core or something like that, but we don't know the weight, we don't know precisely the training data set. There, there is some um, a sort of memory of the past uh, that is embedded into those training data sets and so into the answer of ChatGPT. So it's interesting to see this conversation between um, people asking questions about the past to ChatGPT and then negotiating the answer by, um, by modifying the prompts. They ask the question, they ask. When so you say negotiating the answer, you mean getting the answer they're looking for? Yes. <laughs> Changing the questions yeah. so that they can have the answer they want. And then by that, it's training chat GPT to formulate what we want to know? It, it depends on if you... No. Uh, yeah. Only for short-term memory, because apparently, as far as I understood, the, the long-term memory of chat GPT is frozen in 21. And so anything that you do in a conversation enters its short-term memory and will be used for the conversation you're having with it. I tested this because I asked it a general question about a model in, in educational technology and it had no clue about the model. So I fed into, I, I negotiated the text that it produced 
Uh, and finally, the output was okay. So it corresponded to what I knew about this, this framework, this model. And then I did a new conversation, asked the same question again, and it was totally oblivious. It had no clue. It again told me, I don't know this thing. So can you tell me? Okay, okay. But effectively, you're then uh, circulating a bubble of getting it to tell you what you already know. But I do in that case, yes. yes because th that's what I wanted to see if it was able to produce a text that was a good text uh, that I could feed to my students as an explanation of that model, yeah. uh, which the model itself did not have. And I, I want to stay with you then, because you come from the cognitive psychology point of view. So just, just overall, what do you think of this movement in our technology when it comes to education, just daily life? Well, first of all, I think what's interesting with all these machine learning systems is that it, it, it's a tool for research. We can try to understand how human learning, basically implicit learning. So whenever we learn something about the structure of our environment, so anything we know from neuropsychology about how humans tend to form memories of how the world works is now something that we can run on a computer. So in that sense, that's, that's amazing. And this has started in the mid-80s, basically, with computers that were not very fast, data that was not very much available. So the simulations we were able to do in the 90s were rather limited. But now with all the data you have, you can basically have a simulation of a part of the mind of, of humans and then test this instead of cutting up the brain of people. You can cut the brain of a, of a simulated brain, so to say. That's a good positive. <laughs> <laughs> That's, oh my and goodness. then see what happens. Okay, we're saving uh, brains. Dead, dead brains, obviously. Yeah. I, I have another note here, actually, just going back to your previous point, that you've done another little experiment yourself. I, 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 can, I can see you doing all these little experiments yeah. at home in your free time. You tested Wikipedia against uh, in Encyclopedia Britannica. No, I didn't. I, oh, but I, it's been done. It's been done by other people. And, and actually, it seems to be more accurate on average. On average. Wikipedia. Of Wikipedia, of yeah, course. Yeah. yeah, because it's more up to date. Because there are so, so many people that contribute a little bit of their time. Some do spend a lot of time <laughs> editing and, and writing. Um, but other people are just changing one word. And so it's the mass of people... That, that improves the quality, basically, of this encyclopedia compared to something. If you, if you take Encyclopedia Britannica as a paper book, so that, of course, doesn't get updated, except the once-per-year uh, mm. update book. So, citizen science. So, you have to train humans to just be better citizens, in a way. I want to turn back to you, Martin, uh, coming back to just, again, our daily lives, in a way, uh, jobs, again. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... You know, the description for jobs and how you see from the research that you've done, you've done a lot of research, I know, uh, in the past months. Mm. Um, what do you think the future of jobs? I know you're coming from a news point of view, but it's not just news. You will have thought about other jobs as well, because, uh, you know, we're just, you know, one end of a big spectrum of yeah. similar jobs. So how do I think jobs will change? Job descriptions, yeah. Oh, I think that really depends on the industry. But I, at present... I can't really see something. I mean, there's a lot of worry about ChatGPT replacing people in their function. I think it's incredibly overstated right now. I think job descriptions will change because one thing that I can see already, again, going back to journalism and web editing, which is what we do here, um, people who use technology, technology like GPT are obviously better at their job than ones who don't. So I don't think that we're going to have a metaphorical robot sitting here editing all of our news and pushing our articles out. I do think that we'll be able to do much more more work, so more quantity, but also qualitatively better, stronger, more accessible work that's more adapted to our specific audiences than we can without it. But I, that requires that you, you learn how to use the, to, the technology and, and negotiate with it, as we said earlier. Yeah, it makes, it makes sense. I mean, even just a small, tiny example of something that's helped uh, everybody with technology is uh, spell check. Yeah. That's one tiny yeah. example. And, my and translations. Mm. Translations. Yeah. And and even the fact that you don't need to go to a library to get a book. My my daughter the other day, she said she cannot under, she literally cannot conceive of a time where I had to go and research things <laughs> in books. <laughs> Been there. <laughs> <laughs> she finds that really quite I want to turn back to you Christoph um, now I've got I've got some notes here and uh, I've got a note saying um, 
you could in the future use open AI to create an information booth for people to talk uh, translationally through history. For example, you could study historical events like Napoleon, for instance. Um. I'm not sure if they get the question. Oh, well, the fact that AI in the future can be used to create a, a really amazing experience of learning. So not yet there, but getting to a point where AI more generally can really help education change transformatively. Uh, yes, uh, I agree, uh, but it depends in which level. So uh, in schools, I'm a little bit skeptical because uh, this, this, the pupils should first learn by themselves how to, let's say, give an argumentation, how to prove mathematical statements and so on. Uh, I think that uh, maybe an AI uh, baccalaureate, something like that, should should be there. Uh, universities, I'm, I'm definitely in favor of using ChatGPT very offensively. Um, the big point is that in a moment, I mean, from an educational point of view, I would like to know not only the uh, the answer, the final answer, but also, let's say, how is it made and how is it done, uh, and uh, the the question of making errors, mistakes is important for for let's say, for example, uh, just to tell uh, how I am prove a mathematical statement. Of course, I should do mistakes here and I should do the wrong way because then uh, I can see, okay, uh, by counterexample, maybe it's not the best choice. Let's do it by induction or. So uh, I think that's something what is currently missing with ChatGPT. Uh, I hope this will can be improved. Um, I think um, what I read last week uh, in, the, in the New York Times that, that at Harvard there is someone who uses now ChatGPT uh, for the course or let's say allows ChatGPT to uh, direct, uh, let's say, a course. I like this very much. I would be would like to know more about this. How is it functioning? Um, I would like to do in the next semester um, a way um, in the sense that I say to the students, okay, you have to give a presentation. Afterwards, you have to give a summary. Um, please do it by yourself and uh, use ChatGPT. Then we can compare the results and see, uh, let's say, what's better. Um, but just come back to the to the previous discussional point. Um, I think that human factor is really important. And uh, if we talk about jobs, then of course we need uh, someone who checks the the output, because. Um, if we understand ChatGPT as a system that uses data, big data masses from somewhere, we do not know exactly where it comes from. Um, but then it's, of course, um, it could become critical because the data could be falsified, the data could be not correct, the data could be, let's say, uh, have some kind of weight. Uh, so it could be some kind of attack in this way. Um, so, um, yeah, control, I think that's important. You have taught in many different continents, in fact. And so you've got the perspective, the global perspective of this work. How is it evolving in other continents? I'm thinking particularly of uh, Asia. In Asia, China, I, I gave a course. What I learned there is that they used, I mean, that this now seven, eight years ago, they used YouTube and showed videos uh, during the course. And uh, and then afterwards, they discussed the content. That was a new thing to me. I'm traditionally the, um, a teacher who would do it in the in a way that um, um, I give a lecture, I, I say something, we have a conversation with the students, they give feedback and so on. But there it was like that. Um, all in all, I think it could be come productive in a sense that um, JGBT could addition, give additional information about a certain topic. Uh, for example, let's say we talk about Napoleon and then uh, because of the time we cannot discuss the Austerlitz uh, battle and so on. And then I asked JGBT, uh, can you give some more background knowledge about that? Can you let's say, pro produce a little document that we can give to the to the students and so on. In this sense, it could be an additional, let's say, um, yeah. An additional source of information. Yeah. Bob, um, yeah. I know that you, uh, a lot of your work revolves around uh, teaching and uh, and just going back to something that you, you, you've done a lot of your life, the, pro the approaches to teaching uh, pedagogy, such as problem-based, project-based, design research approaches. So just from a, a teaching point of view and something you care deeply about, yeah. talk to us about how we can use this to help teaching to me, this is just a, yet another tool, because I think that 
given that we had Wikipedia to, to just name that technology or that website, reproducing knowledge has all be or, or memorizing something that you just reproduce has been futile to a certain extent for 10 years already. So uh, why do they still do it? <laughs> why do we still have exams like this? Because we want to objectively and fairly assess people and compare them to some extent. Okay, But we also want them to exercise, uh, to train their memory. We want them to, to get knowledge. And of course, it's always good to be able to stand on the shoulders of your ancestors. So, because you cannot reinvent the wheel each and every generation. So, I mean, like uh, Pythagoras' theorem, that's something that you could probably still discover with, uh, uh, with the help of a teacher. But, but there are other stuff like quantum mechanics, and I have no clue what this really means. But this is something that's so difficult and so hard, and it's something that humanity took so long to develop that if you want youngsters to be able to access this uh, treasure of knowledge, then you kind of need to have the help of, of somebody who is already knowledgeable. But what I have been doing over the last 20 years, basically, is, is not necessarily focusing on content knowledge that I want my students to have, but train their critical thinking uh, skills, their learning to learn abilities. Because we have seen over the last 40 years, basically, that the information and communication technologies have given us access, have democratized access to information, not necessarily knowledge, but at least to information, so that memorizing it in your body or in your brain becomes maybe less necessary. And of course, new knowledge is, is constantly added. So it's, it's even more important to be able to, to work on that new knowledge, on that new information that, that you get, and then to be able to produce an answer that solves your problem that you now have. Because I teach future primary school teachers and, and, and a lot of them think when they start the, the program at university that we will teach them in three or four years everything they will need to know to be able to uh, do their job for the next 40 years, which is totally futile. It's futile because learning science evolves so we know more about uh, learning we know more about teaching the demographics have changed in the last uh, 100 years in luxembourg so the problems in education especially primary education have have massively changed and so they need to become lifelong learners and i think at least upper secondary and university teaching is really about empowering lifelong learners Yeah, I, you, you're absolutely right. Martin, do come in there. Yeah, I, yeah, I actually have some thoughts about education as well, because I, I did at one point think that I was going to be a university lecturer too, but then dropped out of that and happily found myself here. But <laughs> I actually think that something like ChatGPT is a great equalizer for yes. the university environment, because I remember having a lot of, you know, third country students whose, you know, primary language was Japanese, Chinese, uh, Arabic. And what they really struggled with was actually presenting a coherent argument in English. So they might be able to do it in their native tongue, but at the time, translation wasn't as good as it is now. Something like ChatGPT could really help them because they were getting lower marks than they actually deserved if you marked them just on a paper that they handed in, even if the ideas were there, because they weren't presented as clearly as they wanted them to be. So I think for that, it's actually super useful. And equally, uh, people with dyslexia, my, my study buddy at the time, she had pretty severe dyslexia and would struggle significantly because of that. I ended up sort of helping her rewrite her essays so that they oh. made sense grammatically. But she could have equally used ChatGPT for that. And then it would have been even more, it was already her work, but it could have been even more her work. Mm -hmm. And similarly for developing critical reasoning, I think it's very good to send in your arguments to it and say, does this actually hold water? And if it does, why? If it doesn't, why not? How not? And then help you sort of understand the process behind that bit of critical reasoning which you use either other students for or teaching staff but often they aren't available or the students are not that qualified to help you so i think it's fantastic these are huge positives for our world the world that we inhabit which is uh, in in my case particularly very english speaking as much of chat gpt has been based on um, and also it's been based on knowledge from a certain part of the world, but not the entire world. So it's not an equalizer in the sense that the information is not, I think it's biased. It's biased information. Would anybody like to comment on this? I think it will always be biased. 
Okay. Uh, yeah, I suppose history has been biased, as we, <laughs> as we know. There, there are competing systems emerging like Bloom, which is a large language model developed by European researchers, and Hugging Face, which is a, um, a US-based French startup. Um, and, and that takes into account much more language, even, for instance, of course, the main languages that European languages, but also African languages like Wolof. Um, so, so there, there are ways to um, to reduce the biases. Um, it, it's not working well yet. It needs a bit more training. It will be in the next two years probably. Uh, but there are there will be always biases. But there are ways to limit them. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to stick with you, Frederic, because um, you research the exchange between AI and the humanities and social sciences. And talk to us more about the humanities subjects can learn from AI because um, you're you're coming to AI as a tool, which we've spoken about yep. a lot. So talk to us more deeply about the research that you're doing with your group. Um, well, one of the main use of AI in humanities and in social sciences, it's um, basically to deal with large data sets that are not humanly accessible. Uh, that's not new, in fact. In, in the 1950s, at the end of the 1950s, there is uh, an article in the um, NLHSS, one of the main history journals, where they, 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 the, the two authors explain how they dealt with large data of that time, uh, with basically what was still called in French mechanography, so the third first huge IBM mainframes. So it's not new, but the, what is new is that um, sometimes there is um, the, that the quantity of data available today is so huge that uh, we, we need maybe um, a sort of quality update. Uh, and we need to use AI to deal with uh, large data sets. And even um, for periods that are not, uh, for period of time that are not recent. I mean, for the 19th century, for instance, we have digitized almost uh, very large data sets of newspapers. And so we, we are at the level of petabytes now. Um, and, and how to deal with that, how to find the article that you need for, for your research. So here we, we need AI and AI, different kind of AIs, of, of algorithm. Um, for instance, to, to just have a better search than just the keyword-based search, because the keyword-based search, when you've got um, a huge data set, is not efficient. Uh, and when there are also um, optical um, character recognition errors, there, there will always be errors, then the keywords keywords are not good. So um, that, that's, also, um, that's also a huge field of research. So what do you use other than keywords? Um, topic modeling, for instance. So topic modeling is a, a way basically based on collocation of words in sentences or paragraphs or articles or text um, to um, to extract topics in huge data sets. So you will have an idea of what's in the data set. And from topic modeling, for instance, you can uh, refine your search and then decrease the size of your data sets uh, and make it more pertinent for your research. Great. Thank, thank you for that, Fred. I'm going to turn back to you, actually, Christophe. I know you, you look at me with worried eyes. <laughs> what, 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 like, you mentioned IBM, so I'm going to turn to you to talk, because I know you spent, uh, now, how long was it? Eight years yeah. for IBM's research and development department uh, in the area of business intelligence worldwide. Now, we haven't really brought business into this. So what did you do there at IBM? Uh, what I did? Or? Yeah, what did you do? Can you uh, talk to us about it? Or, or yeah, did you have I mean, to sign that an now, NDA? No, that's more than 20 years ago. What we did was to, we went into the, um, and into the, let's say, supermarkets or the stock exchange or somewhere else, or these big companies. And uh, we got data, we tried to analyze it. But the interesting thing, the first thing we did was always to, to see the environment. How is the, let's say, for example, in a, in a, in a supermarket, how are the products placed? Um, and and what is the typical behavior of the, of the of the of the customers? So it was not a pure uh, analysis analysis of the data, 
but also the, the things uh, around. And uh, so typically we got the data then, we, we, we checked the environment, we, we prepared the data, we analyzed it, we made suggestions, suggestions regarding the valuable results, then we had communication with the managers and so on. So it was, let's say, not uh, working in a, in a box, but uh, it was more like an interdisciplinary working and uh, discussion of um, with lots of people. So well, I like what you've just said there because it was our interaction with yes, the data, yes. and, and that's what you've also said, Frederic. Yes. It's it's. I mean, is anybody analysing that right now? People's current interaction with ChatGPT, the negotiation, as you called it, is anybody looking into that right now as to what it's being used for? Mostly somebody must be looking into this data somewhere. I, I could imagine that ChatGPT, for example, could be used to simulate um, a communication conversation among humans. Mm -hmm. Now, for example, let's say job interviews or even, uh, let's say, uh, physician-patient. Uh, so uh, then the, the, the patient says, oh, by the way, I did not do that. Uh, then uh, the ChatGPT may say, okay, uh, please check the answer. There is a contradiction. Um, or the physician forgets to, to say, okay, the, the side effects of these drugs is like this and this. Um, so there could be, let's say, um, some additional input from ChatGPT as a simulator. That's very useful. That's a very useful addition. The reason I brought up business is, in fact, because I know it's something that you care about, Bob. Uh, you've made a point of, of telling me this. You are a little bit concerned about the shift in who controls trusted knowledge. You know, we're still going to have private companies <laughs> yes. compared to public information. So talk to us about this fear. Yeah, I'm, I'm not worried about the technology per se, but I'm worried about all the biases that are in the input and the biases that might be, and we have no clue what these biases are in the supervised learning phase. So supervised learning is when ChatGPT, being trained on some input, output, associations, is then getting reinforcement. So it's a rewarded or punished uh, under inverted commas, for the answers it gives, because the system tries to predict language that pleases humans. Okay, So there, there might be some, some bias here too. What is the type of answers that it gives based on the input that it has experienced? Um, and, 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 and then what are the answers that are politically correct, you could say? Uh, and for climate change, for instance, I tested that with ChatGPT. The answer it gives is quite the scientific consensus. So in that sense, it sounds like it does something that's meaningful. But for other stuff, we don't know. And in this case, if humans use ChatGPT or the likes as an oracle, so as something they turn towards to get knowledge or to get wisdom, then there is a problem because it's a private company that will have defined what is supposed to be true uh, compared to public institutions or publicly sponsored media outlets that that yeah give us access uh, to this or public education is it possible that something like chat gpt or ai can come up with a different what might be perceived as scientific consensus to date a different outcome that might actually be more true than what we think right now because it's got so much information it might be able to analyze a question in the world can't think of one right now, but climate change is an example, for example. <laughs> um, yeah, but it will always be based on the input that it has but it been has, given. It has all of the input, whereas a scientist is working well, with... Well, it doesn't necessarily have all the input. We don't know. Yeah. But we imagine it's got a lot of uh, more. Do we know how much it has compared to what a, a scientific experiment might come up with? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, Martin, you seem to know the answer to this. Well, no, I don't. But I, I, I mean, I do know that one of the factors that is discussed widely is that it, scientific journals are behind a paywall, a lot of them. So is it likely that it has access to all of that? Probably not. Does it understand all of the mm. graphs and everything in them as well? Who knows? So we don't really know what it has, but because it, it's it would not be likely interesting. that it has the full scientific knowledge. And then equally, it's predictive as well. So what and it's a large about? language model. Yeah. So it's about producing language. It's not about producing knowledge. So in that sense, I think it, I don't see discovering new laws of physics, for instance, because there are people who have trained 
machine learning systems to predict what physical objects do when they are in movement. And apparently these systems are very well suited to do predictions, but they don't extract any laws. Huh? Newton's laws are never in the system. So it doesn't generate what we as in science value most, which is rules, laws or, or theories. It just does predictions. And of course, on an everyday basis, I think our brain or a lot of our brain does also do that. We do predictions. And we do predictions in an implicit, unconscious way, in the sense that we don't really know what's behind it when we look at the face and recognize male or female. Mm -hmm. uh, and if I may, it's, it's conservative pred predictions in the sense that it is based on the state of the knowledge without what's not digitized, which is yes. quite important. Yeah. Every, everything's not digitized. Uh, it's based on the state of, no of, of knowledge that is pertinent for September 2021 and with um, um, a, a great importance of the present as it was in September 2021. So it's... It a lot of if things it, have happened. If it creates something, something new, it's by chance. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wanted to turn the question entirely differently. Something that obviously concerns most people is fake information, fake news. But then we often talk about a certain ex-president on this show um, who seems to say things that are not true quite frequently and a lot of people don't seem to mind. So my question to you, Martin, is do people care about fake news, even when it's clearly not true in front of them, as we perceive it to be? I, I think people care deeply about fake news. The, the problem is that they have their very own unique definitions of what is fake and what is not. So a lot of people would say that anything that the ex-president might say is per definition true because he said it and why would he lie? And then the fact that there's ample evidence to suggest the contrary is of little concern to them because they would argue that that's the lack of CNN simply making things up. So why should I believe CNN more than Trump? So people care, yes, but their own biases, I think, are stronger than ever in terms of what they would consider fake or not. So then I'm going to turn it back to the lecturers in the room here because um, you, you've mentioned repeatedly critical thinking. How do you teach us to be very, very good analysts? Yeah, I think I wanted to join here with the term of the bullshitter <laughs> by, by Frankfurt. Oh, there's a German philosopher, uh, no, French philosopher, actually. He, he talked about on bullshit is the book. Uh, and so I think what, what Trump did and does is bullshitting. It's in a sense not caring about what's true, but saying something that the vis-a-vis -vis wants to hear. So, and, and, and that's exactly what ChatGPT tends to do. Uh, so it tends to produce something that it knows that will be likable by its interactor. It cares about that, does it? No, it doesn't care, <laughs> but the system does as if it, it, it cares. And, and, and so, yeah, we need to train our young, young people to, yeah, to detect bullshit. Yes. Not just young people. <laughs> yeah. And we, we also yeah. need to train maybe particularly older people who are not growing up with this technology. And Christophe, I'm turning to you here because you have lived with the changing technology all of your life, been part of its revolution. So, you know, your contemporaries, not everybody, not all of your friends um, and our parents' generation will have lived in this world. How do you help older people come to terms with this information? Um. Just an anecdote. Um, I had um, a visit to the Deutsche Ethikrat um, three years ago, and um, then one of the uh, presenters she told um, that um, they made some excess experiments with elder people in the in the hospital, in a sense that um, they gave them one robot. So and then um, after two weeks, these elder people were asked uh, about experiments, experiences, did, whether they like it or not. Uh, and there was one lady who said um, she liked this very much to be together with a robot in one room, um, but not because of the robot, but because of the young students who come every day to, <laughs> to see whether the robot is functioning. Oh, 
that is so sweet. <laughs> that is really lovely. But in fact, you mentioned uh, a robot here being used in a hospital setting. And I know that robots are being used uh, to help people with autism, for instance, or communication skills in that sense. So there's there's huge positives coming out of this. I mean, principally, you could chat with ChatGPT the whole day. You can enter sentences, you get an answer, then another one. A typical chatbot, uh, let's say, system. Um, it could be helpful, I think, to some extent. So, um, uh, the, the reason I'm, I asked you really about this and when it comes to um, older people uh, not having grown up with this technology is because just last week I did an interview with Adam here in Luxembourg and it's very clear from their large research <laughs> that ageism does exist in Luxembourg and that people over the age of 45 do find it harder to get jobs in Luxembourg. And uh, their greatest lack of job fulfillment in Luxembourg is tech skills, required tech skills in Luxembourg. So how can we all help older people? <laughs> I, 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 I'm an older person. <laughs> how I, I, do we help us? <laughs> I, I personally see the, this technology as a service, as an additional, let's say, support. Uh, it should not substitute. Um, let's say if I'm, let's say, a journalist, I could use ChatGPT to produce text, yes. But uh, I mean... Always, I have to check the content, mm -hmm. so and uh, I have to adapt it to my own style. So um, the same for for elder people, older people. I mean, um, I see it as supportive. Yeah, and again, you you were saying, Bob, that you you teach primary teachers, yeah. and, and they're thinking, oh, I need to teach them all this so they'll go out and flourish in the world. But we don't really know what jobs will be. In seven years' time. We don't know by 2030 what skills are required. Uh, even, you know, you're talking about uh, ChatGPT, um, the, the information being cut off from September 2021. So, so much has happened in just a year and a half. So by 2030, we don't know what we need to know. Yes, that's why we need to be able to learn uh, in the future. So it, it's, it's really about looking up information, discussing information, checking information, cross-referencing information, and also checking it with the world, of course, uh, if it fits, if, if the knowledge we get is, is a good fit for, for our experience in the world. But I think you had a point you wanted to make in, in conversation with uh, Christoph before I mentioned that. Yeah, to, to some extent, I see it a bit as a, as a matter for an, or an, an all Analogy. analogy with a car. Nobody of us came by foot today, I guess. Totally. Sadly from, not. From home Sadly. to here. So, mm. so when it's about producing something, which is travel, we accept that people cheat. No? Cheat in, under inverted commas because we use technologies, in this case, mobility technologies, to get from point A to point B. And nobody would say, wow, you cheated. <laughs> okay. And using a large language model to help you formulate text in a better way seems to me kind of the same. But it's still not. Because if, you, if you're training for a marathon, you shouldn't take the car. No, it wouldn't work. When you want to train for a marathon, you should run. And it's the same with learning. If you want to train thinking, then you need to think. Okay, instead of just cheating. Because in the end, you're cheating yourself. But it allows you to think in a different way. That's the point, yeah. isn't it? It's going to train us to think in a different way. Yes. Do you know how it will change the way we think, given you're the <sighs> cognitive scientist in the room? No, I don't. Well, uh, it will be, the, 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 the big problem will be, again, that we will be, if, if this dystopia or utopia is true, that these robots or these machines... Uh, depends on how, if they move in the world or not, because that makes a big difference to me, at least philosophically speaking. Um, we will be again in front of entities that will act human-like and we will have no clue what's happening inside of them. Like we don't have a clue what's happening inside of each of us. No, no <laughs> idea what you're thinking in there. <laughs> Martin, uh, we have a few minutes left. I'd like you to talk to us about the changing media consumption habits. Mm, to do with AI specifically. We don't know yet. <laughs> this is a current refrain of the yeah. morning, isn't it? <laughs> well, to, to some extent, we know what's happening with... Uh, 
algorithms that suggest us new content, yeah. uh, like on these video streaming platforms where the machine apparently knows you better than you know yourself. And it gets you down the rabbit hole, which is something I find from a, yeah, educational but also political point of view problematic because you're quickly into your echo chamber uh, where you just get what the system knows that you will like. It's a bit like uh, the big A shopping uh, website that suggests a lot of stuff that I want to buy. <laughs> I have bought more books that I got suggested than I can read. <laughs> But nowadays, you can also listen to books, you know, there's yeah. all sorts of options uh, and various technological advantages. So I do a lot of that. Um, sorry, but going back to, um, yeah, the changing world of media and how we consume it. I, th I think the general answer is always that people are just as lazy as they possibly can be with a lot of it. So one thing that I've noticed is that people are not so open to reading longer articles as they might have been before. So instead, they might want to read a shorter article, they might want it presented as a video, that video increasingly has to be just as fast as possible, there can't be too much static, uh, too many static elements in a video, because then again, they get bored. So there is that. And you know, that has an impact on the depth of knowledge that people actually have about a subject. You see that in the comments as well under an article that they will have read the title of the article, if you're lucky, the first paragraph, and then they'll go ahead and say, you know what, this is so stupid because they haven't accounted for X, Y, and Z, and then they'll comment. But X, Y, and Z are, of course, in the body of the article. It's just that it's 400, 500 words, and you simply don't have the time. You're too busy to read an article. Um, so I think that's 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 a big factor. Similarly, as you said, people go go into their, uh, their little rabbit holes, and, and, and it's very difficult to get out of them. And that's, again, where we come back to the fact of bias and what's true and what's not and what's fake use, news and what isn't. Yeah. There, there's a big impact on that. I, I, I fully agree, and I've seen all of that, and it makes me chuckle, actually, all, yeah. all, of, all of those things. But I think, going back to the, the, the hearing world, that's why long-form articles, I can think of The Economist, for instance, they've become very, very popular uh, on podcast form. People literally read their articles now, yeah. and people consume information in a variety of different ways. Yeah, no, it's true. I, I, I never read Ezra Klein in, in, in The New York Times. I do listen to him every week. Yeah. I find that uh, that's a more pleasurable experience for me, more convenient, yeah. yeah and to some extent, it's the natural way for humans to communicate, isn't it? Yeah. Is written language is a cultural technique that was invented to, yeah, store information that you couldn't have in the yeah. audio. Yeah. Because back in the days, you didn't have audio recording. Yeah. No, we just had each other's voices. Yeah. <laughs> and what we're getting with, with apps now, not to do with audio anymore, but there's a lot of startups that are taking in all of the news of the day, deciding for you what is actually important, what isn't, summarizing it, either using the words of the publication or rewriting it completely to get around those rights issues that they would have and, and presenting that to people. And I think that hasn't really taken off yet. But if it does, I think that could be quite problematic too, because then you're even taking the, the written form of news, which so far hasn't been as algorithmically driven as video or even audio has been. And you're applying an algorithm to that, which again will just confirm your biases. Well, you mentioned something that's very interesting there, the, the rights, the, the IP on something when it comes to, to formulating this with information from chat GPT and things. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a big question for us at the moment at, at RTL too, who actually has the rights. And that goes for voices too. As I said, I, I cloned Sam Steen's voice from the morning show with his permission. Um, in theory, I could just put in, we have hundreds of hours of him yabbering away into, into a <laughs> microphone. I could put that in, it could sound basically identical to him, I could proceed to let him go and then have uh, do, do we not GPT run the show. I have no interest in doing that. I don't think it'd be the, a good show, but it's, it's possible. But then who owns the writer's voice? Does he own it when he leaves? We don't know. That's what I was about to ask. Who owns our own? Do we own our own voices? Well, I have it in writing that uh, Sam's voice belongs to RTL. He wrote that to me, which I think was very unwise. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> well, on that merry note, I think I have to bring this conversation to a close. Sam, you're, you're not in danger of going anywhere soon. I'm not quite all, sure no. of that. <laughs> uh, Fred, any final thoughts? Oh, um, um, I think the most important point we made today is like train your critical thinking. Train your critical. Love it. I love the conciseness of that too. And Christophe, we start with you. We'll finish with you. A final concise phrase to send us on our merry way thinking about ChatGPT and AI. Um, 
don't fear, but be critical. And um, I hope that the Europeans will, um, let's say, can decide, let's say, to yeah, to produce uh, a similar long, long learning model. Um, and let's say that we can come up with an own solution. That that would be my wish. Well, I hope you can do it. You and your group. <laughs> yeah, together with colleagues, yes. Yes, yes. Uh, you in the plural sense. Bob, final thought. Whenever there is something new, we should look at what children do. Children play with things that are new and that's their way to discover how these things work. Wonderful. Well, there we go. We will think like children, but critically so. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you.